This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, we're doing something really special and with a pretty high chance that it's going to go terribly wrong. Thus, in the nature of O Ship, we are trying our first four-way interview. So I've got three guests on today. One of them is a familiar face. You've seen multiple times on OSHIP before, my very, very dear friend, Juan Morales. Uh, Juan, as you may remember, is the former global ECD of, of PwC's very large interactive group. Uh, he was an ECD at Sapient Nitro. He was a early member of Crispin Porter and Bogusky's interactive group, and is most recently a very talented and in-demand experience design consultant at Chameleon Collective. We've also got Matt Cave, another great friend of mine who happens to have another kind of design skill, where he's also a creative director, but he over-indexes and specializes around brand identity work. And you've probably seen some of the stuff out there. He's a very talented guy. And then you've got our third guest coming in all the way from Japan, Ryan Hart. And I've known Ryan since I met him, I guess, in uh, around 2012, when he joined uh, Sapient Nitro as the lead experience expert for innovation around financial services. He's had a very illustrious career. He went on to be the principal analyst at Forrester for their experience design group or customer experience strategy group. And then he's even most recently been leading PwC's experience center in Tokyo. So you've got three very, very, very smart guys joining a uh, not so smart me, but I'm going to do my best to uh, to keep up. And what we're going to talk about today is the power of design. And I think all of us appreciate, uh, or many of us, I should say, probably appreciate why design is uh, impactful. I think so many of us have become more aware of it over the years. But today's show is going to be all about really talking about how that impacts us in our daily lives, how it impacts the businesses that we may work for, and and frankly, where it can go from here. So with that, I welcome you to another week of O-Ship. Hi guys, welcome to O-Ship. I'm glad you're here and good to see you again, Nemo. What's up? Hey, Brian, I know it's uh, past midnight in Japan right now, so we're uh, we're really glad you're here and appreciate you uh, you're joining us. So yeah, everything looks looks good, and Ryan actually speaks fluent Japanese, uh, which I think is very very cool. So if you can just keep all your answers in English for my benefit today, I would really appreciate it. So, <laughs> so guys, I hope I gave you credit. Uh, did you credit on on your backgrounds in the setup? In the past, I've had people kind of give a little bit more of their background here at the beginning of the show, but we're not going to do that today because again i think all of you have done so much stuff uh that uh it, we could we could end up with a ten, 10 minutes of introductions but i do encourage you when you're giving answers if you have anything specific when you're when you're thinking about maybe your personal experiences that are influencing your answers feel free to reference those because a lot of people in our audience may not know you like i know you i want to start today uh with uh, just just really kind of thinking about how we think about how design impacts the lives of consumers or customers, depending on what you look at, but let's, let's call it the end user. And we're going to talk, we're going to use some kind of consulting terms here because a lot of us look at this work from both the perspective of maybe some of the clients that we support or big companies that we've helped 
with design. But at the end of the day, you know, this is a Mac, about impacting the, the people that interact with those companies. So I'd love to start with you, Juan. You know, how do you believe design impacts the everyday lives of, of consumers or customers? I mean, I think that's, I think it's huge. It impacts customers in a huge way. And, uh, and I think the example that I always think of is the iPhone. You know, I think that before the iPhone came about, there was lots of mobile technology and lots of apps and things that we were supposed to uh, get obsessed with. And yet none of us ever did until the iPhone came out. And I think when the iPhone came out, it was just a perfect example of how design can take a concept that's already commonplace uh, and just put a totally new spin on it and, and make us all want it and, and can't live without it. So, I mean, I, I think, you know, sometimes design is the difference between, you know, failure and success when it comes to products. You know, Matt, uh, I, I name checked you in the in, intro as kind of our branding expert. I know you, again, you're an artist and you also also do you know design in lots of other ways. But I, I'd love to get your sense of, of uh, you know, how this also brand, brand and design impacts consumers. Sure. From a consumer perspective, my background is mostly in CPG. So I think of primarily, I think of how a package might differentiate on the shelf. So if it's a, it's a product competing with another snack brand, for example, the way that design system is, is really created is all about seducing consumers and being attractive, but also standing out. So it's extremely powerful. It's everything when it comes to packaging and designing for consumer facing brands, but it also has a tremendous impact in everyday life of signage on the road. You know, how, so how people design uh, wayfinding systems and it's just everything. It's, it's so big that we need to focus it in on uh, what we do mostly, I think here. And uh, last, but certainly not least, uh, you know, Ryan, you, you approach life uh, through the lens of experience strategist, which I think is, is quite interesting. Can you explain to our audience uh, what that means uh, versus, let's say, some of the people when they think about a, a you know, designer approaching design? Before you answer, I'd love for people just to kind of understand what it means to be an experienced strategist. Sure. Thank you, Freddie. So when you think about experienced strategists, uh, you're, you're really thinking about now where a lot of companies are investing in, and uh, they see that it's important to, um, to value the experience that your customers are having, your partners are having, your employees are having, the experience that users of your products or even internal systems are having because they realize that the business, the, the business community, the business world has evolved now to the point that says that just having a nice experience isn't just a nice, uh, it's a nice to have, it's going to actually you know, it's going to drive adoption. If you have a digital product, it's going to lower support costs. If you have a good user experience, uh, it's going to improve customer satisfaction. If they can seamlessly walk into a branch and be, you know, transacting on their mobile phone. And then they talk to someone in the branch and they know exactly what kind of issue they've just been having. So having these connected experiences now, I feel companies have recognized that that really drives value. And with, good experiences, you have loyal customers and loyal customers, obviously you have continuous revenue. So uh, companies that are becoming, that are more sophisticated or that are investing in experience now need a strategy. And so it's not uh, just reactive, reactively building the branch based on the architectural 
the architect's uh, map and, and structural constraints. It's actually how can we optimize the space to, to deliver the best experience to the users? And I think, yeah, it, it, it touches every part of, of the organization. It includes design, but it also deals with HR, deals with operations, it deals with management. So very exciting space to be in. And yeah, I'm passionate about design as well. So thank you for uh, letting me join today. So I'm going to follow up with you guys. I would love to know an example of uh, where design has, you know, something that you kind of deal with every day where design has improved the experience or made it a better, um, it, just something that you're more engaged with. I'm actually going to start. I'm super geeked out. I've been playing with the the beta release of Windows 11, uh, which goes, uh, actually gets released, uh, you know, to the masses on October 1st, or 5th, excuse me, because I'm an idiot. I've installed that on my primary work machine and amazingly has actually been working really well. But I think it's a really great example of how, you know, you can take design, apply it to the same fundamental systems. It's still Windows. It still does the exact same thing as it did before but it's a far better user experience because of how they've changed, um, you know, changed the interface. Again, I'm, I'm a geek, so I get, you know, this is the kind of stuff that gets me excited, but I'd love to know if there's some kind of example of maybe it's something you've been playing with recently or a new tool, product, company you started interacting with. I don't know, it could be anything, but I'd, I'd love to hear from any of you, you know, something that maybe inspires you um, that, you're, that you've been interacting with lately that it's all about the design. I, I, I encourage anyone to pipe up if, uh, if you've got, got a thought. I got one, uh, and and it's it's again it's it's not a very technological product, but but uh, something that definitely got improved a lot by technology, and that's swimming goggles. So I like to swim. Ever since COVID, I, I you know used I swimming as a way. Swimming goggles. <laughs> I, I used it as a way to to de stress. And if you swim, you know that uh, all swimming goggles leak, right? You get water inside, mm-hmm. and it gets very annoying, especially if you're doing a long swim. Well, this company uh, basically paired itself with the iPhone and with the AR technology in the iPhone. And what it does is it actually scans your face. You scan your own face. And then they use that 3D scan to custom make the eye sockets of the goggles. And at first, I didn't think it was going to really work. But let me tell you, it works gangbusters. And I was like, this is this is amazing, right? That's amazing. Yeah, really, really, really cool way of, of using AR in a place where you probably would have never thought it would get such value. I'd be afraid to use that, that they would charge me extra for the goggles because I'm notoriously making, everyone makes fun of me and my big giant melon head. And they'd be like, oh, we don't, we don't make goggles for big fat melon heads. Too big, too big. Same here, Freddie. You have the same problem? Thank you. Thank you for identifying with me publicly uh, live on no ship with your big fat melon head. I'm glad to know that I'm I'm not alone. It's it's a club. And I've got an example that's a little bit, it's actually a little bit more, it's, it's a bigger example, and it's actually a little bit more, I, I mean, timely. Obviously, right now with uh, COVID, um, you have a lot of people that are not getting vaccinated, right? So uh, I think in Australia, it's a really good, it's an exceptional example of how they leverage design and behavioral economics, basically, to nudge people to get vaccinated. And so what they've done is, in New South Wales, which is where Sydney is, they have this this app that everyone, you know, people are logging into it on almost a daily basis to see where the line is. What they've done is they put a really beautiful visual there that just really simplifies it. They said, this is, this is how many people are vaccinated today. This is our goal. And they have a red line right there. They say, once enough people get vaccinated and that crosses that, that threshold, then we will open up. And so of course, everyone wants to, wants to open up, but super smart. 
but about having just that visual there to be able to say, hey, do your part. We're not opening up. You guys are protesting because we're not opening up. Well, then you need to encourage more people to get vaccinated. And so I think that's super powerful of just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. They basically gamified it. And then I love this idea that like, okay, you know, a lot of people, especially in the US, and again, I don't want to go down any political paths here, but, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of like, you know, I don't like being told what to do, especially by you know the man and big government and things like that. And so, um, you know, I love this idea that it's like, look, you, you know, your neighbors will encourage you to do it. And, and, and there's no, there's no moving line. They're like, yeah, if we yeah. cross this line, we're going to open my It's really smart. I actually haven't yeah. heard about that. Yeah. So I want to be conscious of time and let's, let's jump, jump gears a little bit here. So, you know, we talked about how we see design impacting us on a, on a personal level. All of you have worked with some very, very large, uh, you know, both national and global brands when it comes to impacting design solutions for them. And I'd love to hear about how you feel that the, this this outward facing design is obviously good for customers and consumers. What about when it's turned inward? I'm going to start actually on the on the, actually on the brand side. When you think about the power of brand design, uh, Matt, I'd love to hear your kind of take on on what it means to the from the business perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And also another very big topic. I think of the most, the highest impact there, let's just say the brand strategy work has already been done. So therefore there's, there's a, a foundation, there's a platform and there's a narrowing down of possibilities. So once you have that, it becomes a matter of visual identity and visual language. I call it visual voice. Uh, we all know of brand voice as like verbal voice, tone and voice. Um, there's also the visual voice. If you imagine, um, let's just say a brand is trying to attract a certain crowd. Um, if you imagine that brand is, you know, like a person who's dating and they go into a bar, they're going to go in packaged in a way, they pack, you can package yourself in a way that's going to be relevant to that crowd, but you also need to stand out. So I always tell my clients on the brand side, uh, be unique, but not a freak. So it's a matter of like, how do you, how do you put on the right packaging as a brand? And that's your visual voice. That's what you, that's what you, everyone sees. And you can really stand out by being a freak, by going into a young professional's bar, if that's your audience, and you have like a bright blue mohawk with face tattoos. You're going to stand out, but you won't be relevant. So there's a matter of dialing that in by giving, giving a brand of a visual voice that is consistent with what consumers and customers are used to in the category, but spin it, elevate it from there without going too far. So I'm very amused by this. Be unique, but not uh, but not a freak. Uh, I think it's it's funny, but there's there's some real merit in in the, in the advice. And so, what if you apply that to experience design? You know, when you start thinking about you know people, I can think about again. You know, while you and I have worked together for twenty odd years now. I can think about interface design and, and product digital product design that we were doing, you know, quite a long time ago. And it was like you wanted everything to be so bold and it was so different and so innovative because we were just experimenting with entirely new ways of interacting with with an app. Is this concept of be unique but not a freak? Does that apply into interface design? Now, do you not want to be so bold because of familiarity maybe increases ease of use? I'd I'd love to get your uh, your take on that. Yeah, 100%. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in our earlier days of doing this job, it was all about standing out and being the first of its kind and 
and getting talked about in the press. But I think when it comes to experience and digital products, I think a lot of times familiarity is what's needed in order for you to get the types of conversions or you know KPIs that, that you're looking to reach um, with customers. And that's not to mean that that being novel isn't helpful, right? I just think that uh, I think like Matt said, right? You need equal parts familiarity and 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 novel in order for you to create something new. And when it comes to experience design, borrowing on best practices or building on the way other really popular platforms uh, do things mm. um, is usually a pretty smart uh, approach. One of the things uh, I would say that when you talk through user experience design is about removing friction. And so when you think about you know, e-commerce, for example, which is an area that, that I have a lot of personal expertise in, you know, you just it's kind of like you don't reinvent the shopping experience because if X percentage of your users get flustered during checkout or understanding how to work with the cart or whatever, then you get a cart abandonment and you have to have a really, really good reason for doing something novel or interesting because it has to offset the potential loss of conversion rate, uh, you know, on that side of the, the business. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to hear from you, Ryan, uh, around, you know, maybe, maybe how design impacts friction um, in some of these client situations that, you know, you might be looking at. Well, it's interesting because actually when you think about friction, actually there's been a lot of research around that that shows that actually you alleviating friction has you, you reach a threshold and beyond that, actually, it's diminishing returns. So you can only make something so easy before at the end of the day, it doesn't, no matter how easy you make it, it's not going to add any additional value to the bottom line, to your customers or to the organization. So uh, that thinking has actually evolved from, it used to be make things easy and then if everyone's making things easy, then it becomes table stakes. So then really it's about how are you aligning with emotions, customer emotions. So if, for example, I go into, let's say I have to go remit money to my landlord, right? So uh, if I go, if I go to the bank and I, and I have a really, you know, tedious process, uh, you know, obviously that's not good, but what if I have a really easy process, but I have a lot of complex emotions. Let's say maybe I'm, I'm worried that is the money going to get there on time so I need some confirmation. Am I, maybe I, I have some, some anxiety about, do I have enough money in my bank account to cover this? So I have a lot of complex emotions. And if the brand or the, the, the bank is not good about specifically targeting it, those specific emotions that I have at specific interactions, then that's where they're going to fall short. And actually, I'm not, I'm not going to be satisfied with the experience. Mm-hmm. And, I may, and I may actually leave the brand. So it's more than, it's, it's actually evolving now beyond frictionless to more about aligning with those emotions, customer emotions. And, and just to build on that, I think this is where I think the brand and the experience worlds connect, right? Because I think that the future of experience is going to be what flavor of frictionless do you get, right? What's the virgin flavor of frictionless? What's the Airbnb flavor of frictionless, right? All these brands have attributes and values that can weave their way into the customer experience. Whereas I think you're right. Originally it was all about ease of use. I think now it's about, you know, how do you make things distinctly that brand's experience and, and, and not just something that's easy. Right. So you're addressing the, you're, you're addressing my emotions, you're exceeding my expectations. 
and then I feel like I have an emotional connection with with the brand, whether it's uh, subtle or, or whether it's actually, oh, I love it so much, I'm going to go post it on social media. I mean, even if it's like something like insurance, of course, no one really has a strong emotional attachment to insurance. But the thing is, is insurance is so emotionally evocative because basically if I have an accident, then it's, it's a huge traumatic experience. If someone has an accident, that's something that they're going to remember for the rest of their life. So that's a huge opportunity for insurance companies to really come in there and address that from emotional perspective. Yeah, making it and making it easy is one thing, but I don't care if it's easy or not. If you actually solve my problem in a way that makes me feel reassured, you took care of me, my family's safe, you know, da 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 da. So I think we're all saying the same thing, but I just I'd love to, to talk with clients more about how are we surgically targeting those emotions or those triggers, those emotional drivers that actually, in a way that actually is going to drive, you know, impact for the customer and the business. So I, I got a great, great question for you. So, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of different approaches to solving customer challenges, customer loyalty challenges. Ultimately, you know, what is this, you know, why are we all doing all these things, at least through the lens of how all of us do this in the commercial space? I mean, we're trying to make people more loyal, more, you know, adopt uh, a, typically a company and, and fall in love with them and connect with them. You know, how do you know when it's, what, what is good design? Well, how do you know when you're doing it right? Is that about some business metric? Is there, is it subjective? To, I'd love to get that. Let's, let's start with Matt on this one, because I think actually branding can be some of the hardest places to determine what it, what is a good brand, but I'd lo- love to get your take on this. Yeah. Um, we, again, we talked about this earlier, how we could talk about this stuff for five hours and, you know, it's just, yeah. it's so deep. So from a brand perspective, good design, I, I believe is based on a good strategy. So the reason why I value brand strategy so much as a designer is because it helps me narrow down the possibilities. My biggest problem as a designer is there's just too, there's too many ways to solve a problem. Once you have a really tight brand strategy, very articulate, well articulated and differentiated, then it becomes let's let's it becomes a matter of let's dive deep to figure out what this should look like, what this should sound like. That's the that's the design practice that I think is extremely important. And when it ladders up to the brand strategy, it's successful. But you go beyond that, like let's just say I had a solid brand strategy and I presented three different options. The success becomes when you present it to your client and their team falls in love with something. They say something like, oh, my God, you've captured the spirit of our brand. That's that's when I feel like when you get that that kind of reaction from our client, for example, who may then do some research to see what kind of reaction they get from the consumer or their customer. Mm -hmm. That's successful. So it's there's gut instincts and then there's vetted. And I, I think that's a combination of both. I'm going to throw a quick tangent in here before I ask the other guys their opinion on this because I'm I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to point, I'm going to name you each, and I want a quick, simple answer on this. We're having a gentleman's bet, okay? You have you have two startups. They sell the same product, okay? Where at least the product is designed to do the same thing, okay? One has a terrible hokey brand that looks like it was made by that really funny lady on TikTok. Okay. Like really, really, really bad stuff here, but it actually has a really good, let's call let's say it's a digital product, has a really good user interface. The other product, but when I say bad, I mean like 
comedy level hokey bad. Okay. You're horrible. And then you've got the other side of it. It's a good product. It still actually does what it's going to do, but to interacting with it, the user experience is terrible. But when you look at it, man, it looks like a million bucks when you get to the website because the marketing is really good and the brand looks like a, you know, a, a million dollar brand. Which version, if you had to bet, you had to put your 10 grand, it's a seed up seed money for a startup. Which one uh, would you end up investing in? I'm gonna start, I'll start with you uh, first, Juan. You know, I would say probably the one that has a good customer experience, right? Because I mean, even as a customer myself, right, I've been frustrated with websites that I thought looked great. And then when I couldn't do the thing I wanted to do, I'm like cursing their name to death. So I'm I'm guessing that that happens to other people as well. So I would venture that. And, And Matt, how about you? I want to ask you specifically the user user experience designer versus the brand guy on this one, and then we'll, we'll let the strategist settle the bet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I actually align with one. I think the most important thing is the functionality. Form follows function, in my view. And I think that it needs to be really smart. So it's almost like saying, I believe that a house with good architecture is better than a house that that crappy architecture and a really nice, beautiful facade. Yeah. I would go with the good architecture any day because that foundation is so hard to build smartly. Mm. You can always improve the aesthetic and the style just by, you know, you can reskin it. Mm. So yes, I, I would go, if I had to choose, I think it's both, mm-hmm. but if I had to choose, it's the customer experience. Mm-hmm. And what about you, Ryan? So I'm going to answer that with data. Um, just that's Okay, I like it. So 2015 DMI, so the Design Management Institute of UK, actually did a, did a big research on uh, design-led organizations. So they defined design-led organizations by companies that, uh, that invest a certain amount of money in the design. They had a certain number of resources. They, they had a, a, full, a full set of criteria. They found that actually design-led organizations like Intuit, IBM, you know, Apple, these companies collectively outperformed the S&P 500 by 211% just because they were wow. design-led. And then I wrote, I wrote actually, I wrote a, a white paper um, in uh, 2019 on the ROI of design thinking. And I also found that companies that have scaled design thinking practices uh, have an ROI 85% higher than companies that don't. So I think, uh, I mean, it's clear as day. Companies that invest in making their customers happy and making their employees happy and making uh, products that people want to use, they win. They win. Now, all that being said, knowing we, by the way, love loved your grounding this in, in data. Yeah. Knowing full well there is a clear business ROI. How often do you feel like design doesn't have a seat at the table uh, when, it, when you when you work with these different businesses you interact with? All the time. All the time. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a scientific mm-hmm. estimate, but you've had to guess what percentage would you say? 95% or more, probably. Oh my <laughs> God, really? Is that bad? Really? Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I Juan and Matt work with more sophisticated clients than I do, but I work with some of the, you know, the Fortune 100, Fortune 50 companies in the world, and those companies... They still, to this day, think that design is about making something pretty look pretty. Once the engineers have already built and created a product or a service, they throw it over the fence to the designers and they say, okay, make this look pretty. And the designer basically says, this doesn't even align with what 
what we understand that the users want. And so having that designer at the table, kind of like Bezos does in his Amazon meetings, he has an empty chair there. He says, what's that empty chair for? And they say, well, that's where the customer sits. Having that, that voice of the customer at the board level or at those meetings where the decisions are made, that right there is imperative. And, I, and unfortunately, I just don't see enough companies doing that. I just have to ask, you know, Matt and uh, and Juan, is that is that what you feel like as well? I mean, as you guys are sitting in that seat frequently, and do you feel like you you, you struggle uh, sort of struggle to be heard in, in executive leadership meetings? The level companies that I typically work with, yeah, they don't, I have to do a lot of educating about that. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest impact is impact is the level of companies that are not utilizing it. And I believe that's why it's so much more valuable for companies when they do leverage design because 95%, as Ryan said, don't. I think that's the biggest aha is design is a differentiator that's under leveraged right now. So the ones who are at the four companies who are at the forefront of that, they win because it's an obvious difference when it's done well. Mm-hmm. And that would even just to pile on on that, I would actually say 100% of companies use design, but they only use design in the sense of making something look aesthetically pleasing, right? They're not using design with the capital D, which is conceptual design, thinking, you know, out of the box, uh, you know, trying to challenge the way that, you know, companies and brands have done things for, for a long time. And I think that that is something that we don't see often enough, but I would also put some of that back on the design community, right? I don't think that a lot of designers have spent the necessary time to really understand, you know, the businesses that they're working with and the business case of design and, and, and how we can actually help businesses do better business um, rather than just uh, help businesses look better or be more uh, or be more beautiful, right? I think we can help businesses be smarter and more innovative. And I think a lot of companies are, are hopefully coming around to that, but definitely not, not nearly enough. What do you think we need to do to change? Like, how would you try and get uh, industries or businesses to bring this more to the center of their thinking? I actually start with the design community. I mean, I talk to a lot of young folks. I mentor a lot of you know young designers. And the first thing I tell them is to not be afraid of business, to not be afraid of talking numbers, to not be afraid of opening spreadsheets. You know, they're very kind of common cliches in the design community that we don't do that stuff, right? And I think that the more designers start stepping into understanding the business case of our work, I think the better will be received when you come to the seat at that table and, and you have that way to talk. That's really smart because it's, it's, it's like, hey, if you want to have a seat at the big table, you've got to be able to talk the big table talk. And that doesn't mean you have to be passionate about it, but you, yep. you need other people to go, you know what? This person really knows my business. This isn't fluffy design stuff like, you know, when they when they try and when your counterparts in different parts of the business try and push back and challenge you, when they can tell that you actually understand the problem, not only as well, but theoretically better than them. And that's really, I'd say that really is the, the you know, the challenge of the, the, the designers, especially user experience designers. You do. You need to understand the problem better than anyone. You need to be able to go, hey, uh, I, I've thought about this problem and I've thought through all these funny little permutations of this experience that you haven't thought through and how do we handle that and how do we make sure there's not poor experiences for people which cause friction cause drop off cause abandonment uh you know uh product swapping lower engagement rates i mean any of these things i think are really really bad for the business i I love that i think that's i think that's um that's really powerful so i'd love to ask 
you know, we've all been going through this crazy pandemic together. Some of us as, as friends and, and some of us as, as colleagues, and some of us as both, for the record. Do you feel like the, the pandemic, um, the last two years, has, has it changed at all in terms of how people are thinking about design? I guess let's start with, uh, with you, Ryan, on, on that one. What, do you, what are you seeing out there? And you have an interesting APAC uh, point of view, which I'd, I'd love to hear about as well, if you don't mind kind of singling that out. Yeah, thanks for putting that out. I, I think it... I, I do benefit from seeing uh, what a lot of people in the States and sometimes U.S. clients don't see is, is that there's a lot of really good global examples of best practices and what companies are doing that they probably would never have been exposed to or, or, or seen otherwise. So I think that, that that does open my eyes to a lot of, uh, of unique perspectives. To answer your question specifically about the pandemic, I think that more than ever, you know, going back to what I was talking about, about addressing cu- customers' emotional needs, I think there's a heightened need for companies to dial up uh, design and really focus on that because gone are the days now. I mean, if, if they weren't able to, to engage customers before, and how many people, and I think all of you probably have had this, you've had a client that says, hey, we built this app, and now no one wants, no one wants to use it companies to actually spend more time with customers to really understand what is it that customers are, what's driving their customers, what they really want. And the only way you can translate those insights, those latent needs and desires is to have designers, really savvy designers, UX strategists, you know, chameleon type, um, you know, all, you know, really top-notch people come in there and, and take a savvy look at things and basically translate that into to business actions and, and things that are going to actually align with those. We, we actually had a really interesting challenge, uh, I guess it was about nine months ago, super powerful product. I can't obviously disclose the client, super powerful product, very, you, you couldn't help but look at and go, wow, this could be really big for customers. And they were like, well, look, we're just, we're just throwing money at this thing, trying to acquire customers. We can't do it. And, um, you know, they had approached us through a marketing lens and we had to have the chat with them, which is like, uh, we're not trying to insult anyone or hurt anyone's feelings, you know, within the company, but stop spending money on marketing. You're w- absolutely wasting your money. You've got to fix the experience, everything from the sign up to post sign up, because you're just, you're just burning money down right mm-hmm. now. And it was a long process, but we helped them completely redesign the user experience. It's awesome looking product now and and it had a profound impact on on you know their growth you just do you can't put you know bad money uh, after good in this situation yeah, Freddie, if i can just jump in with a quick example on that that just build on that yeah, um so dbs dbs is the development bank of singapore one of the largest banks in southeast asia and actually they're they're consistently rated as like one of the most innovative banks and you know, best customer experience banks or anything so they basically released this this uh, digital only bank for india called digibank and what they did was they basically for usability testing they basically weren't able to go out and get indians or, or actual people in the market to do the usability testing so they were kind of it was a rush job so they actually used some of their own staff and their own employees to do the usability testing all of the all of the staff and the employees were like yeah this is great great experience super usable yeah we like it you know it's good they put it on the market and the local market, the customers hated it. They didn't understand how to use it. The usability was terrible. They couldn't get any adoption. They started using, throwing bad money after, you know, good money after bad, trying to market it. And then they realized that, uh, you know, we came in and, and, and talked to them and, and said, well, one, of the, one of the most critical things was your usability testing was wrong. 
And so basically, we actually actually came back and they did that again, made the redesign, launched it again, and adoption was was off off the charts. It was totally different, you know, night and day type experience. But it's a good example of how you don't use your own employees as a proxy of, uh, as a customer to go out and test products and services with, because a lot of a lot of times they have some some they're not going to come out and say really what's what is wrong with it because they understand what's under the hood and they understand that you know there's politics behind it so not exactly the right right way to handle it what, um, i'd love to get uh, your guys perspective talking to man again sorry it keeps singling you out on the brand front but i just think you've got a really interesting perspective there you know you talked about your specific cpg experience you've got a lot of brand building there for people that don't know much about the space is about you know, shelf, shelf, shelf space. Uh, you know, it's about how do you make incredible brands that catch people's eye quite literally walking down the hallway, uh, you know, or, or sorry, you know, a walkway or whatever in, in a retail environment. And how do you differentiate just by the, the power of a, a wonderful brand? Again, now you're seeing, especially it was quite interesting that the CPG space, which was never really a big digital thing, kind of blew up in e-commerce in particular in the last year and a half. Have you seen anything there that you, you know, uh, in terms of how these kinds of brands are maybe approaching design and their brand post, post-COVID? Yeah, that's a great point because I, before I wasn't thinking so much about a thumbnail, a shopping on Amazon or, or something like that. It's more about going to a Whole Foods, for example, walking the category and actually being there and taking pictures and understanding that context. But now it's because COVID has created this boom in people buying online. It's just phenomenal. And I now it's more top of mind because I think obviously there's ways to get your brand to the top. So you know, I, I don't affect much of that in what I do, but the visual side of it, I, I think it's just another category to understand how to differentiate with. Mm-hmm. So it's just another set to apply whatever design concepts to, to make sure that it, it stands out and it's not like blending in with another brand in the category. So distinction and uh, I, I think is super important, but I think the, um, the cool part about what digital brings to a customer interacting with a product and you know, a package is there's all the other ways that you can get the information right there in the thumbnails. You, know, you, can, you can move the product around in a 3D type of um, package instead of just a still. You could click on a video to understand the lifestyle piece. So there's a lot of other opportunity to influence the consumer at the digital. Or, or, or even the delivery process. I, I'm, I'm, by the way, Matt, I'm not sure if you're allowed to talk about this. If you're bound by any kind of NDAs or whatever. So if you're, you're and we can't talk about this, let me know. Uh, but I know that you did some really, really interesting work for licorice.com. Um, in the last year. And that's an interesting example of like a CPG product. They, they own a domain that owns, you know, kind of owns the, owns the name. It's a ground up, you know, direct consumer product as far as I understand. Are you able to talk about maybe like examples of how brands like that? But yeah. if, if you have, and for those of you out there, if you haven't seen the, the licorice.com branding, it is epic. I love it. Um, and it's getting it's straight through from the digital experience all the way down to the packaging and, and even, you know, the boxes your products arrive in. Uh, that's a great example, Freddie, because it is the nature of brands now. Direct-to-consumer brands are, are just that. It's you, you might find out about licorice.com through an ad or something because you've been targeted. You eventually go there. And then that whole experience from when you go there is, in my mind, intended to set you up for this what their goal was 
premium. It's a premium experience because they're delivering high-end licorice from all over the world because licorice is one of those things that people either love or hate. So yeah. we're kind of creating this world where you, you're a licorice lover. It's just where you get the love. So you get all these varieties to choose from, from all over the world, Finnish, Swedish, um, all the different types of licorice. And basically you can now go to the website and order it and you see the packaging are in these really cool, simple paper tubes. So it's a very sustainable side of it. But the cool part is, is when I think of licorice, I think of like the black and red licorice. I grew up with Twizzlers and then that black licorice, sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. So the design system is built on these red and black stripes. That's very iconic. It's the universal truth uh, among all of them. But now I had to think about not just the package, because that's a lot of times what I do in my career. I had to go beyond that and think about, okay, how does the whole experience of the e-commerce side of it tell the story, paint the picture? And then when you get it, what does that gift box look like? Is that box something that you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. That's what I was aiming for. And again, because it's a premium experience, they're selling licorice. They're selling quality licorice very conveniently in a very high level way. One extra piece I'll add to that is they created a vending machine. There's a prototype vending machine. I know that. That's cool. I'll send you a link. It's a prototype now. And people can go up to this vending machine, little key, little like iPad level like screen, click on what yeah. you want, boom. It, you know, it's like one of those machines that goes up and like finds your product and then pulls it down. Beautiful the stripes come through. It it works. So that was a lot of fun for me because it was the 360 approach. And I'd say like in my 25 plus year career, that's new for me. And I loved okay. it. And that's, that's, that's very boring. cool. On a, a side note, I liked uh, licorice.com just a little too much. And I had to wean myself off of it. I'm about 10 pounds down now. Thanks to me being off my uh, crazy uh, licorice.com bender that I, that I went on. So really, um, really uh, quick, this will be very quick. Yeah. They also had me do pretzels.com top secret. It's coming soon, but it's an interesting new experience from the same people. Very cool. Hey, uh, Juan, I'd love to ask you, uh, you know, what have you seen change in the last kind of, you know, whatever, close to two years we've been, you know, in terms of, you know, the influence on the pandemic on, on design? You know, I, I think what it's done is it's accelerated uh, what some of us in the industry already saw coming, right? Which was mm-hmm. the, the huge wave of digital transformation that was going to hit any and all businesses, right? It didn't matter who you were. I think there were still a lot of businesses who thought that they would be safe from from having to fully become digital organizations. But I think the pandemic really just kind of put the royal kibosh on that, right? I think that mm-hmm. the idea of forcing consumers into channels and networks like stores, right, to come in and buy was a thing of the past, right? Like now at this point, we had to give you know customers any and all options they wanted to be able to interact with us however they wanted. And the funny thing is that doesn't apply to just customers, that applies to employees, right? I mean, us at Chameleon, we've been doing remote work forever. So we've known how great remote work is, but the rest of the world kind of caught up to to that mindset and that philosophy. So I think the pandemic, if there has been some silver lining, is that it has really pushed companies to, you know, give customers and people what I think they've been wanting for quite some time. And, and it give, they gave these businesses a real good justification for doing so. And I think the one thing that I will add to that is the QR code finally had its moment. 
in the pandemic. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, you can't go to a restaurant now without getting the little QR code on the receipt and you could just pay right there from the receipt. So, I mean, again, you, you really see it affecting any business, small and large, uh, in, in, in such a big way. And I think in the future, that's just going to lead to lower operating costs for those folks, uh, easier training, uh, you know, an easy, uh, you know, more employee satisfaction as a whole, because I think, you know, Ryan can probably speak to that too. We know that more digitally enabled companies, you know, do better with customers and do better with employees. So, you know, I think in the end, this will be that kind of great turning on of, of the digital transformation efforts that we've been trying to lead for many years now. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if consumers or whether it's business customer, or, you know, individual consumer, if they just have people have just less tolerance for, you know, any kind of piss poor user experiences at this point. And frankly, even brands that don't know how to express themselves properly, especially in the digital space, when that is, you know, become increasingly how so many of us, you know, have had to live our lives. I'd also argue that, you know, before you used to be able to say, well, you know, we're for early adopters or we're, we're, you know, we're, you know, this is who we're targeting. But in a world that was largely forced to go, you know, 100% digital in many, in many industries, obviously it didn't apply to everyone, but in a lot of industries that everyone went remote, everyone started dealing with things in the digital space. You know, saying we're for early adopters just doesn't cut it anymore. You're either for everyone or you're for nobody at this point. And that means you need to have accessible, incredible design um, and brands that, that resonate and brand experiences that resonate. And, and, and no one expressly said this, you know, earlier on, on the, on the show, but I, I, at least my point of view is, you know, when it, the kind of weighing back in on the whole like brand versus user experience thing is I just think they're kind of one and the same, right? Your user experience is your brand. Uh, you know, your, your brand is part of your user experience, all these things, you know, there's so many elements of design. I could probably, you know, sit here and rattle off versions of design, product design, interior design, industrial design, artistic design, you know, uh, user experience design, user interface design. Freddie, if I can just build off that, I mean, I think what what's missing there is the, the idea of purpose. So really it's about being purpose led. And so, uh, I think, you know, a brand is, this is our purpose, this is our promise to the market. If they're not living up to that, then, they, then they're, they're falling short. It's expression of your right. purpose. And so the experience, if the experience doesn't live up to the, the, the promise in, in the market that's by the brand, that's where it's falling short. And I think just, I think you, you said it really nicely, but I think what you're getting at almost was like, there's this crisis of trust in the market that people are now flocking to, to brands that share the same values and, and are purpose-led. I mean, that's where you see, you know, sustainability, on the tr- transparency, generally good brands are, are winning in the market as well. I mean, you look at that. Well, experience is where the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, I think with branding, you can say a lot of things, yeah. right? And I think customers are very quick to sniff out whether you're BSing or not, right? And I think experience design is really where you can prove it, right? Really where you can let a customer live that brand that you've created and and you could fulfill that promise, right? And that's why when it's done poorly, we have little patience for it, right? Well, you don't want mm-hmm. someone that's going to make a promise and break the promise, right? You're not going to be friends with that person for much longer. So I, so I think, you know, brand is almost a promise we can make to customers of a thing, of an idea, of an ideology. And then experience is how we can fulfill that promise, right? How do we get to deliver on what we've said we could deliver and do it credibly and authentically? Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add one quick thing if, I'm, if we have time, Freddie. I, I like to think of brand experience as the umbrella above the other 
types of experience because when you're talking about a company who's even B2B talking to customers, not consumers, how is their trade show experience? How do they show mm -hmm. up at a trade show amongst all the other competitors? And then that same experience on their website. And then that same experience may be slightly tweaked for a consumer on that side. So I like to think of it, all of it as an experience. And then the experience has different um, audience members, different participants at different levels. And mm -hmm. the UX like that we were talking about here, experience design traditionally, I think that's, that's like so important because digital is everything now. So I just think it's all part of the same thing. So yes, I agree with what you said, Freddie, on that. But brand experience is the whole thing. It's like you got your purpose, you got your foundation, and then mm -hmm. all the expressions depending on who you're speaking to. I think that is a perfect way to end uh, this week's O-Ship. Uh, I think everyone was able to make a, a, a great last final point and wrap up some of their thoughts in, in a really salient way. I'd like to thank everyone who's been listening, whether you're listening through one of our podcasts or you're watching us live on any of our live stream or even watching after the show, whether you're tuning in via LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, Goodness, they probably put me on some other streams now that I'm not even aware of. Uh, again, if you're listening through the podcast, uh, really thrilled that you're tuning in through whatever platform you are. We're really thrilled about how the podcast has been growing and, and we're hoping that it's been just as good an experience uh, when you get to miss out on those giant melon heads that I mentioned earlier and just get <laughs> the pure audio experience. Uh, the best thing you can do to support the show at this point is give us a like, share this post on your social feed, or just tell a friend. And if you really want to make our day, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on uh, right now. I just want to give one more uh, shout out and thank you to all of my guests. Juan Carlos, Ryan Hart, and Matt Cave, thank you so much for joining today. I really, really enjoyed today's O'Ship. It was not nearly as much of a ship show as I thought it was going to be with all four of us, but you know, uh, I think it worked out really, really great. So <laughs> thanks so much. And with that, thank you everyone for joining us for O-Ship. The O-Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie, we'll see you next time when we will once again be raising the sails for the O-Ship Show.